0: Good morning. My name is Bill Mallow and I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. I'm going to read the scripture for this morning. It's found in Romans chapter 8. Uh, also, uh, we will be uh, addressing Zechariah chapter 3. I won't be reading that passage this morning, but I want to bring your attention to it. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat under the seat in front of you. And Romans chapter 8 is on page 944. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? our Lord. You may be seated. Take a few minutes and reflect on these words.
1: Ten days, ten days from now we're going to be at the 18th anniversary of 9-11 and many of you can remember you know exactly where you were on that day. It's one of those moments you're driving in a car, you're just had gotten to work, you're tuned into the television, something happens and somebody calls you and says, have you heard what's going on? On that day, a man named Todd Beamer was on United Airlines Flight 93. And Todd was, had a final conversation with a switchboard operator named Lisa Jefferson and he was talking to Lisa Jefferson, and he had said to her, who was a switchboard operator, hey, our plane's been hijacked, and she had been telling him what had gone on, so he said, we're going to try to hijack the hijackers. And before he hung up the the phone, Beamer asked Lisa Jefferson to recite the Lord's prayer with him, and so they said it together on the phone, and then the last thing Lisa Jefferson heard from Todd Beamer was Jesus help me are you guys ready let's roll at 10:30 or at 10:03 United flight 93 crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania all lives lost a year later Todd's Todd Beamer's wife also named Lisa, wrote a book with the title, Let's Roll. Maybe you're familiar with it. Try to imagine for a moment just Lisa Beamer. She, she's five months pregnant. She has two young children. And this is what she knows about the last few moments of her husband's life. And she's standing there at an impact crater out in the middle of a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where she just lost her husband. What would come to mind at that moment? Well, lots of things, I'm sure, for Lisa, but this is what she, she wrote in her book. God knew the terrible choices the terrorist would make and that Todd would die as a result. God knew my children would be left without a father and me without a husband. Yet in his sovereignty and in his perspective on the big picture, he knew it was better to allow the events to unfold as they did rather than to redirect God's, Todd's plans to avoid death. I can't see all the reasons he might have allowed this when I know I, he could have stopped it. I don't like how his plan looks from my perspective right now, but knowing that he loves me and can see the world from start to finish, it helps me say it's okay. If we believe wholeheartedly, if we believe wholeheartedly each moment that our destiny rests in the hands of Jesus, the one with ultimate love and ultimate power, what we do, what, what do we have to be concerned about? Of course, our humanity clouds this truth many times, but hanging on to glimpses of it keeps everything in perspective. Our humanity, when we're standing at an impact crater in our own lives, our humanity clouds our perspective. But we hang on to certain glimpses, certain truths that helps keep our lives in perspective. And one question I have for us today is, what do you hang on to to keep things in perspective? See, every life is going to have... Impact craters, moments that you have to stand and stare at something that's happened to someone you love, it's happened to you. It's a physical thing, it's a financial thing, it's a relational thing. You're going to have these through your life, and they're going to cloud your judgment. It's going to cause you to be suspicious. And I'm wondering, what what, what glimmer, what, what anchors your soul at that stormy moment? From verse 18 to the end of the chapter, Paul's been trying to provide anchors for your soul. He says in verse 17 that we are children of God. We've talked about this for a few weeks. It has a little comma, provided that we suffer with him. And so I think from 8, from 17 to the end of the chapter, Paul's been saying, hey, I'm writing to these Roman Christians, these first century Christians. I I know personally they're going to experience pain and suffering. I've experienced it from being a Christian. I don't want them to be surprised. I don't want them to be caught off guard. So I'm going to provide all these anchors for their soul so that when they get to the impact crater of their life, they have something to hold on to, some glimpse of hope. And here in these last great verses of Romans 8, Paul provides what I would say are two massive anchors to steady your soul. The first one is justification, verses 31 through 34. And the second one is no separation. So when, when you're in these stormy, turbulent times, you need these anchors that are going to hold you fast and one is justification, and the second is sanctification. And those are the two things I want us to look at this morning. If you just first notice in, the, in the, these first four verses, 31 through 34, notice the judicial or the legal language. Paul's got a courtroom scene in his mind. Who's, who's going to bring any charge? This is We understand this watching Law & Order or whatever legal show you like. It's a, it's a courtroom scene. Somebody's bringing a charge. Who's going to justify? Who's going to condemn? Who's going to intercede? All these things are part of a courtroom scene. And Paul is like the, the, the trial lawyer. He's ripping through a series of questions. You notice he puts all these things in a question. And it's all to hammer home this one particular truth, which is that we've been justified. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior now have a a new position before God. Colossians 2.14, Paul says it this way, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. See, Paul has this very judicial mindset here that one day you 're going to stand before god i 'm going to stand before God, and however it operates it 's going to feel like a a trial it 's going to be like a courtroom scene and we 're going to have some some judgment that goes on and just just for a moment, try to get your mind wrapped around verse thirty three who shall bring any charge against god 's elect see he 's asking it as a question as if There isn't going to be anybody who's going to bring any charge. If I just try to imagine, Paul Phillips comes up to the final judgment seat. Somebody calls out to all of creation, not not just people, but any empty words, any deed done in the dark, any misplaced anger... uh, Paul Phillips has just arrived. Is there anything in all of creation that wants to bring condemnation, that has any charge against Paul Phillips? Silence. Delicious silence. And maybe the person saying, uh, excuse me, Paul Phillips, I don't know if we got that. Paul, it's Paul Phillips who's arrived. It's it's really ridiculous, isn't it, that 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 somebody could call out to all creation and say, any thought, any word, any deed, any action, any person been wronged by Paul Phillips? Here's the chance for you to to speak up. And the reason that's possible is this word, big theological word called justification. The best definition Paul gives himself in Second Corinthians: God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God. That's the simplest little explanation. There needed to be some kind of substitute on my behalf. So when I stand before God, I'm justified. And if you're saying this in a vacation Bible school setting, you'd say it's just if I'd never sinned. I stand in that particular place. Now, I want you to really see how huge this is because it's not only that I stand there and it's as if I hadn't done anything wrong. That, that would be awesome. But it's not just that. That's like one part of the coin. The other part is when you turn it over, all of Christ's righteousness comes to me. See, it's not just that I'm forgiven. That would be plenty. That would be enormous. That would be all I could possibly ask for. But it's not just that I've been stripped away of all of my sinfulness. I've actually been reclothed with the righteousness of Christ. It's really overwhelming. And so here I want you to turn back with me to Zechariah chapter 3. So if you're not super familiar with this little thin Old Testament prophet, just go to Matthew and go left a couple of chapters and you'll see Zechariah. And Zechariah has a series of visions, and we don't have time to unpack all of this, but you'll certainly get the the feel here of what I'm trying to say. Zechariah chapter 3 Then he showed me, this is Zechariah the prophet, showed me Joshua who is the high priest. This is the person who's going to represent Israel before God in front of the judgment seat. He's the high priest. He's standing before an angel of the Lord and Satan. This is the courtroom scene. Standing at his right hand. And Satan, who is the accuser, is planning on accusing Joshua And not just Joshua, all of God's chosen people, Israel. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? See, I know he was in trouble, but I have personally reached my hand, and I have plucked him from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity away, your, your iniquity away from you, and then I will clothe you with pure vestments. The only person not saying anything here is Joshua. See, justification is a... Is a gracious act of God. I'm going to come in. I'm going to rescue you from fire. I'm going to take away these filthy garments. I'm going to give you my garments. This is all something God has done. It's really incredible. And then pointing ahead, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are of a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant. Okay, you're just... You're just zeroing in now. I'm going to bring my servant who's going to be called the branch. I wish we had time, but if we, if we had time, we'd just press the branch. And remember the hyperlink? It would hyperlink us to Jesus. I'm going to bring my servant, Jesus, who is the branch, the, the springing off of David. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, meaning God sees everything, I will engrave an inscription... And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What's he talking about? See, so he's pointing ahead. This is the whole picture that Paul's trying to, to, to get us to really understand that, that now we can stand before God, we can stand before Him fully justified. And because of this ma- massive anchor of justification, here's what Paul really wants us to know verse 31. God is for us. I just, I wish I could just stand up here and say that like for 20 minutes. And just say your name. God is for you. God is, he is for you. The God of all the universe with all the power, he is. He is for you today. John Piper, God is entirely for us and never against us. None of our sickness is a judgment from a condemning judge. You ever feel that way? I used to do this all the time. Bump your head as a kid. And what do I say? Oh, God, what did I do to deserve that? These these things come our way and immediately we think that this is God's punishment on us. No, the punishment has already been absorbed. So God is for you. None of our sickness is a judgment. None of our broken cars or failed appliances is some kind of punishment. None of our marital strife is a sign of God's wrath. None of our lost jobs is a penalty for sin. None of our wayward children is a crack of God's whip. If we are in Christ God is for us. God is for us. And the way this works as an anchor is that when you look at yourself and you cry out these words that the Apostle Paul cried out in, verse, in chapter 7 of Romans, oh, what a wretched man or woman that I am. Who could possibly deliver me from this body of death? The answer, Jesus can. And he did, and he's for you he's for you and to, to 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 get the anchor to hold in place verse 32 god who did not spare his own son if he has not spared his own son his generosity is coming towards you in his grace and mercy so it's a perfect sunday for the communion table because some of you have come in this morning and felt like God's not for me or he's forgotten me or something. And I want you to know as you come forward, God's whispering to you, I am for you. You might be standing at an impact crater. And even at that moment, you can drop down an anchor that you've been justified before a holy God. And now all things, all things are working together together. For good. That's a great anchor. Second anchor, verse 35 through 39. First, there's no condemnation. Now, in these last few verses, there's no separation. He's trying to help these first century Christians to know that no matter what happens to them, there's no separation from God. Remember in Philippians, Paul says... Um, you know, I, 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 I'm, in, I'm in prison and I could be killed. And that'd be okay because then I'd be with the Lord, right? If I, but if I'm not killed, then I'm serving the Lord. So, see, either way, he's not separated. He doesn't feel any separation. He doesn't feel any threat to himself, no matter what's happening to him. And Paul is reminding these first century Christians of something very important, especially for them because Nero was a Roman emperor and when he threw these lavish parties he needed light so he'd tie a christian to a big stake and wrap him with oily rags and then when it sunset he'd light the rag and everybody would have the party around while these human torches were lighting up the garden see if that's happening to you you're going to feel like there's separation if that's happening to your dad or your mother, you're going to feel like there's separation. So Paul is trying to really help. It's, this isn't like just game, play game time. This is real. This is, hey, I want you to know even at that moment, there is no separation. And it's like these last few verses uh, have come to a, a crescendo of a symphony. It's like Paul can't get enough volume. He wants to just turn it up. There's, I used to watch a lot of ballet because my daughter was in ballet. And at the last sort of uh, act of the ballet is called the coda. And that's when everybody who's been in the dance, they all come on the stage. And so, you know, some scenes are four or five or six or two or three. But now you get everybody on the stage and, and it's banging and banging. And everybody's doing their dance. And at the end of the dance, the audience is standing up and the cymbals are crashing, and the dancers are dancing and saying, "This is awesome." And that's what Paul wants to try to end with this. This is awesome. This is awesome that there's no separation." And he's going to bring on the stage every possible, every possible problem and say, "None of these things are going to separate from you, you from God. No tribulation, no distress. I love the Greek word there. It's a better word, narrowness. It means if you're hemmed in. You ever felt that way? If I, if I any way I move, I feel like I'm going to lose. I'm hemmed in. I want you to know even when you feel hemmed in, there is no separation. There's no separation in persecution. There's no separation when there's famine or danger or sword. Paul knows this. He's not speaking... As a bystander, 2 Corinthians 11, I've been in prison, flogged, exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one because they believe 40 lashes would kill any human. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in open sea. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, my own countrymen, the city. Dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers. I've labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. See, Paul understands this persecution, this hardship. He knows that these people are is eventually going to face their own suffering. Late in his life, he's led out of a Roman prison outside the city with a man with a sword in his hand. And that man chops Apostle Paul's head off. I just wonder if the Apostle Paul saying, hey, no separation." See what 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 anchors your soul right at that moment. Paul wants to give you this anchor that God's giving. That nothing can separate you, and then notice. He's had all these singles come out on the stage. Now, now he's bringing out pairs. Not death or life. Not angels or rulers. Nothing in the present or thing to come. Not, no height. Nothing in heaven or hell. Nothing can separate. And just in case he's missed anything, verse 39, no, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Amen. Amen. See, nothing. I've brought every possible contender out on stage and none of these things can separate you. Two two massive anchors for your soul. There is no separation from me and God now. None. I'm in the, the front door of the kingdom of God right now. And when I die, I'm going to be ushered in to see the whole thing. So there is no longer any separation for me. And I know I'm going to be ushered in because no condemnation. These are anchors for our soul. Many of you have been to the USS North Carolina. On the deck of the ship, they have a giant, really a giant anchor. I don't know if you've seen it. 25,000 pounds. Just try to imagine that. How how would you like to be your job? Hey, you're the anchor guy. Mm. you got to pick it up and throw it over. you got to pull it up. No way. 25,000 pounds, and there's two of these on this massive ship. And you think, why why would these ships be equipped with such massive anchors? You might say, well, it's a ship that's going to encounter storms. Which is true. It is a ship. It is, did encounter storms. But that's not the only reason. It was a ship to encounter storms. It's a ship built for storms, it's a ship built to intend to go into storms and anchor itself in a storm. It's not just a ship that's going to someday receive storms and sort of, well, I'm ready whenever it comes. No, I'm ready to go into a storm. The same is true for you and me. You and I are going to receive storms. They're just going to somehow come from nowhere. You're going to need to drop down some anchors. But you and I were designed to go into storms. Jesus finishes his teaching. Guys, let's get into a boat. Halfway across the lake, what happens? A storm. Jesus is sleeping, and it feels like separation. Jesus, don't you care about us? Guys, what does he say? Where is the anchor of your faith? This is exactly what you were designed for, to go into storms, and you and I are going to face storms but we're meant to go into storms, in a family, in a life, in a church, in a community, drop our anchors, and stand. And if our heads get cut off, we're with Jesus. But many lives have been stabilized by somebody like you and I purposely going in and willing to stand in a storm. So I don't know what storms have come your way. I don't know what storm is heading our way. I don't know what impact crater you may have stood before and had to trust in this anchor that... You don't know if it's going to hold, but Jesus wants us to to remember that he is for us. So as we take uh, communion this morning, I want you to remember that he is for you. Would you pray with me before we take communion, Lord? First of all, I'm thankful for your word, the truth of it. That it can it can steady us in the worst storms. And I pray for my friends, my family here, visitors, that they would know these two anchors of n- no separation, justification, and no condemnation. Lord, I think about the um the people that we've sent out from this this church to be in. Stormy places. Think about Sarah Smith. Could have lived here in America. She went to Romania. And purposely put herself in the stormy waters of these, the lives of orphans. For the carpenters who could have stayed here, had a wonderful life but they went to Thailand to, to put themselves in the storm of sef, sex trafficking. Benny Matthews goes and puts himself in the storm of the whole nation of India. Would, would you even now help them know about and remember these two anchors for their soul as they're in these difficult places and help us to pray more fervently for them. And would you help us in this moment around this table to, to be together, to be people who encourage one another just by saying, hey, we're, we're standing in this storm together. We know that on the night of your betrayal was a massive storm and that you came and you said to your disciples, this is my body this is my blood this is what I'm going to do for you I am for you don't be afraid be of good courage and I pray that you would take these very common elements and bless them for your purposes today I pray in Jesus name amen well the deacons will come